Empire. Learning to move, it's a skill that can change everything. You know, we're sending people to the moon, and meanwhile we have push into my hands as the main evaluation tool for joint and muscle injury, which is incredible. Um, with all these advances we've made in technology, we somehow forgot to address what is the most common occurrence, which is musculoskeletal injury. That's Dr. Phil Wagner, the founder and CEO of Sparta Science, a lab that is attempting to take instincts and trained movement to elevate the best athletes on Earth and the moon. I'm Bram Weinstein. This is the Future Sport Podcast. Phil Wagner was an athlete himself, and it was his injuries that derailed his career, so he decided to do something about it. He'll join us in a bit to discuss a journey into training the body to avoid the movements that can cause issues. But first, the future is now. Sports teams are owning esports teams. VC firms are all in on growth of leagues and events. And now pop culture icons are trying to find a way into that space as well. Sarah Fisher joins us now from Axios. Hey, Sarah, how are you? Hey, doing well. How are you? Drake is in now, huh? Drake? Yeah, it's always someone new, isn't it? It is. What is his interest at level in this? Well, he's always been a fan of the esports world. He's sponsored teams before in the past. He's a player himself. And I think that he just wants to get involved because it's a happiness and it's a, you know, something that he does in his spare time. So what he announced the other day is that himself, along with some of the biggest media and tech heavyweights like Marissa Meyer um, are investing about $3 million into a seed funding run for a new esports platform that's called Players Launch. So tell me about Players Launch. What will it be? How will it differentiate itself? It's a super interesting company. So essentially, gamers can play their favorite video games against other people for prizes, you know, money, um, but they can do it from their living room. Like, they don't have to be professional gamers that go to professional tournaments and that are backed by sponsors. You can just be a regular everyday gamer and you could go uh, and find a match through the player's lounge matching system that you can play against. And if you win, you can get some money. Um, are you finding other artists from outside the, the sports and the esports space that they're getting interested in this space? A lot of right now, the interest is coming actually from sports celebrities. You have big names like Chris Bosh, Steph Curry, Michael Jordan. These are the types of people that have been investing a lot in professional esports teams. But, you know, the other type of sort of Hollywood tie-in is the talent agencies. You have talent agents who are looking for places to expand their portfolios, and gaming in uh, esports is an interesting place for them to invest. And so in what way? They, they want to try to turn the players into celebrities and make content out of it? Yeah, or just helping them raise their profile, whether that's helping them get uh, brands interested in them or it's helping them to expand their social media footprint. I mean, there's now a talent economy, too, around esports, which is a super interesting development because it previously only used to be that you had to be, you know, a pro athlete or you had to be a, you know, celebrity superstar, but now you could be, you know, an Instagram influencer, or you could be a gaming influencer. Do you think the play here is to try to mainstream it? So to try to uh, get these people and then 
put them into other realms in music and arts? Yeah, I think that's the key. I mean, you want to make sure that you capitalize on talent wherever it might be. So if that talent is in a rising field like esports, you want to get that talent out there and make as much money off of them as you can. Now, the thing about esports is that for a lot of people, the the practice seems so far away, they can't imagine how someone would become celebritized from it. But if you take a look on Twitter or Instagram, some of the top esports players, I mean, they have millions and millions of followers of mostly young people who are also interested in gaming. So it's not like you're taking people out of a total vacuum and shooting them into stardom. Within their own world, they're stars already. And the streaming numbers of the events are just outrageous as well. So outrageous, yes. You have many hundreds of thousands of people streaming, sometimes millions of people streaming these games. And it oftentimes can be a really good opportunity for artists to come in and want to be culturally relevant around some of those streams. So, for example, Weezer, you know, the alternative rock band, yeah. they debuted four of their, you know, original songs on Fortnite. Marshmallow, uh, which is a, you know, DJ, uh, had a private concert on Fortnite. I think 10 million Fortnite users showed up. Huh. So it's bringing so many people to uh, these esports games and events and tournaments that you're actually bringing the brands and the celebrities and the artists there to reach that audience. It's an amazing explosion. Sarah Fisher from Axios, thanks so much. Thank you. Simon Ogus from Future Sport is here now. Foam at FSU being developed with the hope of decreasing head injuries, right? Yeah, you, you think of Florida State as a, as a football school, but its engineers are really making the news this week on the sports side. Their engineers are developing something called an oxetic foam that is supposed to decrease uh, concussions and head impact collisions on the field. All right, we'll get to more on that in a bit. But first, Dr. Phil Wagner from Sparta Science on the typical injuries athletes suffer, but he believes they shouldn't have to. This is the Future Sport Podcast. Billionaire in the sports tech space might be someone who can come up with preventing injuries to star players. It's probably an impossibility, but it is a mission of Dr. Phil Wagner, who is the founder CEO of Sparta Science, and he is our guest this week. Hi, Phil. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Bram. So what got you into the idea of injury prevention? You know, I think the the frustration was originally born out of these injuries that I sustained um, as an athlete in, in different areas and, and kind of was shocked by the level of randomness that was occurring, um, you know, during that process. And so as a result, you know, wanted to go into coaching to figure out, you know, how I could help others avoid that issue, um, only to find that, that my issue was more of a shared phenomenon. And so that's where going to medical school and eventually starting a technology company, you know, looking to solve this problem of how do we address uh, injury risk? And if injuries are sustained, how do we rehabilitate that individual? Um, So let's go back to your life as as an athlete, a football and a rugby player. What happened? What were the avoidable injuries that occurred to you? I'm laughing because what, what didn't happen would be the better question. <laughs> um, it, the, 
yeah, I think, you know, had, had muscle injuries in different areas, um, which certainly are preventable. Um, it becomes more difficult once you sustain the first one. Uh, it's more likely to have the others. Um, but, but concussions became a, a problem, uh, ended up having a few shoulder surgeries. And so really kind of the whole gamut. Um, and let me go back to the idea of that you put out there of there was randomness in, in how it was treated. Can you give some examples of what you experienced that you were trying to get a better solution to? Yeah, and I think, you know, you know probably the best high-level point to, to bring up is that there, you know, we're sending people to the moon, and meanwhile we have push into my hands as the main evaluation tool for joint and muscle injuries, which is incredible. Um, with all these advances we've made in technology, we somehow forgot to address what is the most common occurrence, which is musculoskeletal injuries. And, you know, and so as a result, my experience and many people's experience is you really are at the whim of the opinions of the practitioner, you know, how good are they at pushing into your hands? <laughs> you know, so that's that's what makes it challenging. What's strange to hear it is that in the case of high-level professional athletes, and there's a major investment in their health, and it will have a lot to do with the success of the team as a whole, that there would be any level of randomness allowed to even percolate <laughs> in that atmosphere. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, I think we've we've been compared before to the second Moneyball and the same idea, right? Of, you know, it was amazing 20 years ago that uh, salaries were paid without a lot of heavy analytics into uh, the sport performance. It's very similar in that today, you know, players are invested in whether it's straight out of the draft or additional contracts without any objective information. Uh, as to their health and injury risk. And and really, you know, it, it goes across the population, not just in sports, but one of the value points that we we see now in the landscape of things is now machine learning has allowed the ability to evaluate, you know, mass data and really help some of these practitioners, you know, leverage, um, you know, the community as a whole. Um, you did have the opportunity to work overseas as well. Were the problems the same in Australia and New Zealand and that part of the world as you're seeing with United States athletes? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, when I saw their, their sports science for the first time, they explained to me that, you know, basically they had a smaller population. They, they didn't have the ability, as they explained to me, to break a few eggs. They look at the U.S. model as like, you know, if we break a few eggs along the way, we can afford that because we've got, you know, 20 other Olympians behind that person. Whereas overseas, if Australia, for example, loses or their number one sprinter gets hurt, they'll probably have to wait 12 more years for the next great sprinter to come around in that country. Um, and so because the population is so much larger, you know, it, you know, we've we haven't had really the need to develop the kind of efficiency that other countries have. Um, that being said, I think there's there's a great level of coaching and communication in the United States, uh, but but overseas they're they're certainly more comfortable with health 
uh, technology. I can only imagine a couple of U.S. athletes who didn't quite get to that spot that they thought they would based on injury listening to you say a couple of eggs got broken along the way and wondering, was that me? Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that was one of those eggs. And I think that desire to compete, that desire to be on a team, um, still, like, it still hurts. And I think that that's what drives – um, I think the mission that we're, we're doing at Sparta and certainly drives um, a, a lot of the technology that's being built to evaluate uh, where somebody's at in their journey uh, of being an athlete. So what is the mission of Sparta Science? Yeah, we believe there, there should be no physical limitations to movement. And, you know, that's a, a pretty lofty goal and a pretty lofty vision, but you know, the really only thing that should be holding you back is your, your will, you know, your conviction that you want to do something. That should be your only, um, you know, obstacle in terms of overcoming injuries and being healthy as you play your sport. So practically, what does that mean? Can you kind of describe what are some yeah. of the ways that, that you work with athletes outside of the you have to have the will to do this? <laughs> right. Yeah, I think um, – one of the, the major frameworks that we look at is how an individual interacts with the ground, because unless they're a, you know, a water polo player, everybody has some sort of interaction with the ground, even swimmers coming off the blocks in the turns. And so how do we evaluate that interaction with the ground and how do we classify that uh, for individuals that are at risk or individuals that, you know, might um, be coming through rehab and how do we know when to progress them? And um, we've used and, and continue to use a tool called a force plate that really gathers about a thousand points a second in three different directions. And how does that force plate evaluate that ground interaction and provide a signal that can be used for insights into what that athlete needs to be doing differently? So are you, maybe I just need it more in layman's terms, are, are you explaining <laughs> to people how to run, how to literally swim? Yeah, no, it's a good question. We actually look more at the general movement pattern, uh, whether that be a simple jump upwards, a vertical jump, or a balance um, assessment, or a plank. So some of these more primal or general movements, because what we don't want to get in the process of is just evaluating the skill um, because that's something separate um, just because, you know, I can produce a lot of force, you know, hitting a baseball doesn't mean I can actually hit a 90 mile an hour fastball as an example, you know, and so we want to evaluate the system physically. Um, so when that individual does start doing their skills and their sport, you know, there's no physical limitations, and it's really just the repetitions to hone that skill of the sport. And I would imagine that you have to be careful with instincts. I mean, that a number of the reasons why these people reached these peaks is they have natural instincts to do this, right? A hundred percent. Yeah, I think that what we're seeing is is, you know, this natural selection, but it's less so of a natural selection physically. It's a, it's a natural selection of these individuals probably have great instincts of when to 
push through pain and when not to. Or that, or they just happen to be nearby good practitioners. So um, can you talk about some of the partnerships you have with teams and, and what you're working on with them? Yeah, you know, we started in college basketball, so it was, you know, pretty exciting for us. Um, 11 of our partners were universities, teams that were in the, the recent March Madness tournament, including Auburn. And so, you know, that was great to kind of see this growth within college basketball where, where it all began. You know, beyond that, you know, the other transition exciting piece for us is as Major League Baseball is getting going, um, having a few teams starting to use it. Our, our first client was actually the Colorado Rockies. Um, and so been been great to see them over the last four years really grow into a, a more successful winning team. Um, and then we also work with uh, special forces in the military and, and even the NFL where we're a test that's used at the NFL Combine, um, which is a great opportunity to, to identify risk for players and help them really identify what's going what's gonna to be the best ways to prolong their career. Um, can you describe the test? What do you guys do at the Combine? So we do a, a jump test there, a vertical jump straight upwards. We do a balance test on one leg. So we look at how well you can stabilize on one leg versus the other. And then we look at a plank test on one arm. So we look at how well your core on one side stabilizes relative to your core musculature on the other side. And what do you do with that information? How do you then translate it back to the team or the athlete, if you're working with a specific athlete, of how to improve yeah. and, and how to get around potential injury? Yeah, you know, there's, we, we give it a percentile of where that individual lies compared to their peers. And from that, you know, that, that context allows the individual to decide, okay, how much is too much and where are my weaknesses? A good example is, you know, offensive linemen on a jump tend to really do well on that initial force generation, which makes sense because if you play offensive line, when you get down into your stance, hopefully for your quarterback, you're able to initiate force well, you know, and so that's great to see in the reflected in the jump. But the challenge is once you exceed a certain percentile of that initial force, that puts you at risk for an ACL injury, which is very common in linemen. So this whole concept of, of Icarus and how do we help athletes perform at a high, the highest level yet still remain healthy is, is a real key to the database. You know, we're, we're basically trying to fly as close to the sun as possible without getting burned. Yeah. Um, and have you gotten burned yet? <laughs> we had, well, I think one of the, the uh, confusing pieces when it comes to prediction is a lot of times, you know, coaches and sports, sports people think very black and white. So when they hear prediction, they confuse that with guarantee. You know, and so their the prediction really is it's like blackjack or the weather. You're assigning odds to occurrences that uh, could happen. Um, and we're, we initially were wrong quite a bit. And, and the goal is that right now, each year, we become more accurate with our predictions because we have more data. 
Um, right now, our, our injury prediction tool is about the equivalent of uh, a mammogram in terms of detecting um, breast cancer. So it continues to improve, and, and hopefully we, we continue to um, be more accurate with some of these predictions that we're seeing. Um, maybe you could share then some surprises that have come out over the years here in, in going through this data, because you're studying the human body and no one's figured it out yet. We're still working on that. So what are yeah. some of the conclusions yeah. you've, you've come to that you were actually surprised by? Yeah, I think one of the, the biggest pieces behind machine learning is you, it allows you to come to conclusions that, you know, you would never think uh, possible. And a good example is uh, with baseball, we were able to see that when individuals don't initiate force well on a vertical jump, they have an increased odds for an elbow injury, Tommy John. And when we think about that, we would have never looked for that. But then once the, the, the database is able to identify that, we can start thinking, oh, well, that makes sense because if you don't start or initiate force well with your lower body, then you're going to have to use your upper body to generate that force. After all, there's a giant pitching rubber on the mound for a reason, right? It's encouraging you to use your legs. Um, so that was a big surprise. I, you know, I think the, the other surprises have, have been we're able to identify some concussion uh, risk from the plank test. And we started to think, wow, you know, that's uh, – I thought it would be more from the balance test. Why, why the plank? And then when you think about it, that starts to make sense as well because a lot of the, the concussions, they're not happening necessarily in big NFL players. A lot of times they're happening in youth athletes, particularly girls' soccer. And one of the reasons is the neck strength um, is so much more diminished relative to their peers, and they can't control their head position. So as a result, the, the head into the ball or the head into the ground, that really um, starts to explain why we find some of these surprises. Obviously, nothing is, is absolute, especially when we're talking about athletes going at the speed that they go and crashing into one another. Yep. But, but do, you, do you see a pathway to a reduction in the concussion issue for sports like football or soccer? I do. Um, we're, we're a big believer in the body as a system. So it's not far-fetched to say that if you move better with your lower body, you can reduce concussion risk because you're going to be in better positions, uh, whether it's contact like football or whether it's going up for a header like in soccer. If you have better overall body control, if your system uh, is, is more efficient, um, we believe that we can reduce that concussion risk. That's one way. I think another, another way to start reducing these concussions is if the individual is cleared, they can go back into their sport and have a much lower risk for subsequent concussion. Most people don't know this, but the gold standard for concussion return to play when it comes to the physical side, not the cognitive side, but the physical side, is they have someone stand there with a pen and paper and they mark down how many times you touch your foot to the ground while you balance for 20 seconds. And that is not high school. That is for the NFL, the NBA, professional leagues. 
that is what we're using to evaluate somebody's ability to return to play. Concussions obviously are a huge issue that the leagues have to deal with. The arm issues that you named in baseball, specifically the devastating ones like Tommy John, are, are obviously a huge issue. Is, is there something out there, a commonplace injury that is occurring that you guys are earmarking and saying we'd like to find a solution to try to limit those? Yeah, I think that the big one that continues to rise is ACL. You know, um, certainly concussions in the in the media quite a bit um, and has – pretty long-term severe consequences, but, you know, we haven't even really touched ACL in terms of um, the occurrences. It, it continues to rise. Uh, we learn more, but we actually don't necessarily affect the outcome. So we're really focused on actually pairing up the interventions with ACL to reduce the occurrences. You know, a good example in females is, you know, 20 years ago, they said, up. Oh, their females have more ACLs because they have wider hips. And then 10 years later, they said, no, wait a minute. It's because they have hamstrings. Their hamstrings are weaker than males. And then about five years ago, they said, well, it's actually trunk position. And that they, they're not as strong in the upper body. They can't control the trunk and put stress on the knee. And the real answer is all of the above. And that every individual is going to have a unique pattern and so how do we identify that individual's risk, whether it's hamstring, hips, trunk, and put in the appropriate plan to reduce that risk? I'll leave you with this because you had mentioned youth sports. Um, professional teams can pay for your services. Collegiate uh, programs can do the same. For youth sports, um, what is your best advice to coaches, leagues, young athletes about injury prevention? Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, I have kids of my own, so I see it now. The, the specialization is a huge uh, cause for what we see and in terms of the injury spikes with youth sports. Um, really, uh, a lot of youth, they, they lack this movement portfolio, for lack of a better word. They're only able to do a, a small number of movements really well. So when they are exposed to the randomness that sometimes occurs in sports, their, their body isn't uh, robust enough to be able to respond to those challenges. And so, you know, really exposing individuals to different movement patterns, whether that's playing different sports or, or different games or even training, uh, you know, as a cross-training tool very differently or something I think every parent and, and child needs to really engage with to maximize their, their resilience. Dr. Phil Wagner is the founder and CEO of Sparta Science. Thank you for joining us, Phil. Thank you, Bram. Simon Ogus is back now for a look into the future. And let's talk head injuries here, Simon, which Dr. Phil Wagner knows can't be completely eradicated, obviously. But at Florida State, they're trying foam, right? 
They're trying foam, and as, as everybody knows, uh, that he's a sports fan or NFL fan, head injuries is one of the, the biggest pressing topics uh, on the state of mind for leagues and, uh, and certainly for the NFL. And what the Florida State engineers are trying to do is develop this oxetic foam. And I'm not going to pretend to be an engineer here, but uh, what it's supposed to do is uh, on an impact or when a helmet hits another player or hits the turf, this foam is supposed to harden quickly, which in turn uh, will lessen the impact impact on the helmet and in turn uh, on the player's head and more importantly the brain and we'll see how that works out for them i mean there seems to be so many different levels of attempts to try to eradicate head injury which doesn't appear to be possible but at least people are out there and they're trying yeah and this is also this project got off the ground due to a grant uh from the nfl actually part of its head health uh, initiative uh head health tech i think it was and uh so the nfl is putting money towards this uh they know it's a problem it's kind of a catch-22 for the league that it's a big they can't have the issue get too far down the road uh because it would affect fans interest uh, you would think but they, they definitely want to try to to do something about this and they are putting their money where their mouth is uh, with these Florida State engineers that are looking to hopefully solve this problem. Let's stay in the state of Florida here, which is the birthplace at their rival. Florida Gators, of course, created Gatorade, and they're working in the future now in a sports science institute as they're trying to develop their new products, right? Yeah, when you think of Gatorade, you just kind of think of the product, or you think of Michael Jordan, or you just think of the athletes and kind of glorifying uh, just the product, drinking the product. But there's really a very high-tech wing of Gatorade behind the whole operation. Uh, at Gatorade Sports Science Institute in Florida, as you mentioned, uh, when they're looking to, to bring out a new product or to test an existing product, to tweak it, uh, they have athletes uh, going through a series of tests uh, connected to a, a number of machines, uh, and their data is is reviewed by, by scientists uh, and the technicians down there to really make sure that the product is uh, helping and aiding athletic performance uh, before it goes on the field. It's something that uh, you know they don't really uh, publicize as much as, of course, the the drinks that they put out, but there really is a big science arm to Gatorade that that they they put the products through the ringer. Look, shout out to Gatorade. They were so far ahead of the curve of all of this. They have so much competition now in this space, but they thought about these things in athletic performance years ago before we were ever even doing things like this and talking about this space. Yeah, and, and they really had the, a, a hammerlock on the whole industry for a long, long time. You're, you're, you're seeing the the you know the, the the March Madness commercials with uh, with body armor and uh, and they they're finally seeming to get some competition in the space. But you know going through the Fast Company uh, who did a whole uh, video review down there, uh, it's something that you definitely aren't just going to get off the ground. The Sports Science Institute overnight. So uh, unless Body Armor has some secret uh, laboratory that's being put up that we don't know about, uh, th- there's certainly going to be a, a lot more to catch Gatorade besides some catchy commercials with Andrew Luck and and Mike Trout. All right. Uh, let's leave uh, this week with this one. Formula E, which is the electric car version of Formula One. They were touring around places like the United States as of a couple of years ago. Um, they're trying out a new game where you can race against real drivers, right? Well, it's really interesting. It seems to be the, you know, video games, uh, certainly when you and I were, were kids, uh, they, they were really, really basic and they've gotten, the, the graphics have gotten really, the whole experience has, has gotten exponentially better. It seems like what the next step of this might be if the Formula E catches on is they are going to have drivers through a telemetry technology race. You can race basically during the race and feel like you are racing the driver in the race that you are presumably watching on TV. 
uh, it, it's a pretty amazing feel to not only you know just be racing some on some random course in a game you know on a Saturday night potentially, but you could be racing during a real race. Uh, you could set up uh, they said old famous races, so you could set up a you know a, a finish uh, you know final uh, X amount of laps uh, finish that was a historically uh, you know photo finish, and you could race your favorite driver. Uh, you could race. Uh, you know, your friends as well uh, with these kind of famous, uh, famous historical races. I, I mean, this immersive experience, it is the future of gaming. I'm all in for that. Thank you, Simon. We'll talk to you next week. Yeah, thanks, Brian. All right, and that'll do it for us. Remember, the future is now. This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Bram Weinstein. 